You are tuned to KZYX Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and K201HR Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. Support for KZYX comes from our members and Ivy Accounting and Payroll Services in Willits, specializing in bookkeeping and payroll services for local agricultural businesses and more, serving all of Mendocino County. More information at ivyaccounting.com or 489-5486. Now, please stay tuned for Forthright Radio. Welcome to this Forthright Radio for October 21st, 2020. I'm Joy LaClaire. We have a very full show for you today. With us for the full hour is nonagenarian psychiatrist, author, psychohistorian Robert J. Lifton. In his long life, he has studied and written about the psychological causes and effects of wars and political violence. In addition to his theory of thought reform, he was an early proponent of psychohistorical techniques, and he was instrumental in the inclusion of post-traumatic stress disorder in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. He coined the term psychic numbing. In 1953, he began interviewing U.S. servicemen who had been prisoners of war during the Korean War as well as others who had been in Chinese prisons after 1951. He published Thought Reform and Psychology of Totalism, A Study of Brainwashing in China. Among his other books are Death in Life, Survivors of Hiroshima, Home from the War, Vietnam Veterans, Neither Victims Nor Executioners, and The Nazi Doctors, Medical Killing and the Psychology of Genocide. His latest book is Losing Reality on Cults, Cultism, and the Mindset of Political and Religious Zealotry. We spoke with Dr. Lifton on October 19th, 2020. Welcome to Forthright Radio, Dr. Robert J. Lifton. I'm happy to be with you. It's such an honor to have you as our guest. To give our listeners some idea of the time span of your work, in 1951, while I was busy being born a few blocks from the U.S. Naval Academy, you were a young psychiatrist ministering to U.S. troops in the Korean War. Nowadays, I consider myself to be an elder, and so I consider you an eldest. Uh, yes, I, I qualify for that. <laughs> Well, I first became aware of your work in the early 1980s during the anti-nuclear movement under the Reagan administration, and I was struck by the aptness of the expression you coined, psychic numbing. Your work, however, began many decades earlier, and if anything, it is even more relevant today than before. Your 2019 book, Losing Reality on Cults, Cultism and the Mindset of Political and Religious Zealotry includes writings from your 1961 book, Thought Reform and the Psychology of Totalism, a Study of Brainwashing in China. And while reading it, I was constantly impressed by how many aspects of what happened in 1950s Maoist China seem so similar to what we are experiencing in contemporary America. Nowadays, though, brainwashing seems almost self-inflicted by our willingness and even propensity to follow wherever social media algorithms lead us in self-perpetuating feedback loops of polarization. And it seems to me it parallels what you call milieu control. I wonder if you share that concern and what other aspects of thought reform or mind control do you see today? In one way, at least at first glance, Trump and Trumpism would seem to be 
the opposite of thought reform. Thought reform is a systematic process involving fierce criticism, self-criticism, confession in seeking to bring about a change in people's identity. And that's what I call a totalistic ideology or a form of ideological totalism in which milieu control, the control of communication in the environment is very intense. With Trump, there's no such ideology. He's really incapable of a systematic ideology. But what connects him with those who practice thought reform or totalistic views, what connects him with them is his effort to control reality, his effort to what I call own reality. They come together on that basis. Trump and Trumpists, I guess is the term now, do it through what I call his solipsistic reality, self-contained completely so that there is no relevance for him of larger groups of beliefs or belief systems, nor is there the significance of what we usually call evidence. It's solipsistic reality, and through that, he seeks to own reality and shares that tendency with totalists who practice thought reform. Another way in which I think the times resonate was during the Cultural Revolution in the 1960s, there were like a generational reactionaryism in which the young people were mobilized to weed out anything that had been established as wisdom or cultural artifacts of an earlier time, and particularly in a whole generation before them. And it was very painful. And what it reflects to me is the effectiveness that seems to have happened with Donald Trump calling journalists the enemies of the people and how we are actually seeing journalists threatened. I wonder if that makes sense to you or if there are problems with that view. Well, there are certain parallels. During the Cultural Revolution, which was in many ways or primarily initiated by Mao Zedong, one could speak of it as an alliance between grandfather and grandchildren with the adults caught and pilloried in between. With Trumpism, you do see a parallel attack on the existing generation and you see an increasing tendency to create his own and Trumpists' own sphere of reality or pseudo-reality. Yes, there was some of that in the Cultural Revolution and in Trump's dismissal of truth-telling journalists as enemies of the people, you could see certain parallels to the attacks on the part of the so-called Red Guard or younger generation in the Cultural Revolution on their parents' generation. Both have been extreme in their behavior and in their claim to exclusive truth. And that is at the heart of things. For listeners who aren't familiar with some aspects of the Cultural Revolution, when, when you're talking about attacks, you mean not just rhetorical attacks, but actually physical attacks. And unfortunately, we are also seeing that with journalists, both by citizens who are convinced that they are the enemies of the people they are in sometimes being physically attacked, and in recent anti-racist demonstrations, there have been many documented by video attacks of journalists by police, which I think takes it to a different level. Yes, in both the Cultural Revolution and certainly Trump's behavior, there is a lot of language of violence, invitation to violence, 
indirect signals toward violent groups, particularly in the case of Trump, of white supremacy groups and neo-Nazi groups. And Trump's violence is many-sided and crucial, I think, to what we're experiencing with him. I would carry this further and in another direction by saying now that Trump is killing, Trump and Trumpists are killing large numbers of Americans. And they're doing that in their handling and mishandling of the coronavirus. Trump is not only failing to take the necessary precautions, which should be national lockdown and distancing and masks and isolation of those who are spreading the virus, but he goes further and colludes with the virus in holding large events, sometimes indoors, without any semblance of distancing and little mask wearing, so that he, in a sense, participates in the spread of the virus in an active and consistent way. And knowledgeable projections have made clear that tens of thousands of Americans, more than that perhaps, have been killed and will be killed by this behavior on the part of Trump. This I would call presidential killing. And to carry it further, there is a Nazi parallel because in my study of Nazi doctors, I spoke of the reversal of healing and killing and we find that now with Trump. In the case of the Nazis, it was the idea of killing Jews who had impaired somehow the Nordic race in order to heal the Nordic race. In the case of Trump, it's killing Americans in order to heal, that is, open American society, despite the fact that the incidence and the danger of the coronavirus is doing nothing but spreading and threatening ever more the lives of Americans. This presidential killing as Trumpist violence is a form of criminal behavior. And in this criminal behavior, those who support Trump, his enablers, are culpable as well. Well, you have written that Trump's supporters and enablers exhibit the same cult-like behavior that you saw when you were studying the German government Nazifying, and you've used the expression Trumpified here. But what is hard to understand if one looks at it rationally is he is exposing his own most avid followers to the virus, and that seems not to make sense. What can you say about that? Trump's motives cannot be, at this point, completely clear to us, but we can make informed speculation about what they might be. Trump casts himself as a savior, as a cult-like guru, and you can feel the cult-like reverberations in Trump and at his large uh, rallies and in the chanting back and forth, whether it's build a wall, Mexico will pay for it, lock her up. And the followers of a cultic leader may invest in him or her themselves completely, offer themselves to that leader. And the leader can demand in creating his or her own reality, can demand that full offering of followers. In that sense, Trump asks his followers to join him in defying the virus, claiming that he, as an all-powerful savior, can defeat it, can actually be infected by it, and then can with his power, overcome it, and thereby 
demonstrate that it's not so much of a threat after all. There have been indications that some of Trump's followers or enablers are a little uncomfortable with being offered in this way or threatened with the virus by his behavior in this way. And there's much confusion about all this. It is not a foolproof system. Moreover, as I say in my work uh, and in my recent book, when a guru is no longer perceived as such, when he or she can no longer offer followers what they seem to need, they may turn against him. That was the case with Om Shinrikyo, the fanatical Japanese cult I studied some years ago, a cult which released sarin gas in Tokyo subway stations. When some of the most avid and loyal and intense followers found the guru Asahara to be less than all-powerful, to be less than a full guru to them, they turned on him. They accused him of being an evil man and a false guru. We haven't seen that with Trump on a large scale, but we've seen indications of it now and then. And even a relatively small number of Trump's followers turning against him articulately in that way can have great significance. We're speaking with Dr. Robert J. Lifton, and we're talking about his long career, his many books, but most recently his book, Losing Reality on Cults, Cultism, and the Mindset of Political and Religious Zealotry. Now, Dr. Lifton, you are one of the people who founded a school of thought called Psychohistorians. Talk a little about what that is and how it's different from just what we think of as history. Well, psychohistory really means bringing psychological methods to the study of history. So that when I studied thought reform or studied Nazi doctors or studied the Vietnam War and and some of those who opposed it, I was interviewing individual people in some depth, but at the same time, placing those interviews in a larger historical context and studying the recent and ancient history behind that context. This, I think, is a necessary approach if we're to grasp the immediate or the general impact of any group, since it has to, in some degree, represent its historical moment. But I don't want to hold, uh, I say sometimes that there's some danger in turning an adjective into a noun. Psychohistorical is this approach of applying psychological principles to the study of history. Once you make it a noun and call it psychohistory, there's a danger of kind of reifying it or making it some kind of fixed entity or something closer to absolute than it should be represented or than I would consider it to be. Nonetheless, this interaction of psychology and history is very much what my work is about. Among your observations and particularly in your work around the role of doctors in Nazi Germany and the death camps in particular, You talk about the rise of a malignant normality and the necessity for witnessing professionals to come forth. Now, I want to keep bringing us back to our current situation. And I have to say that's another one of your terms that really resonates with what I see our situation now. And I wonder if you could expand on that. Yes, and I appreciate your saying that it resonates with the present situation because that's very much my feeling. What I mean by malignant normality in coming to that term from my study of Nazi doctors, what I mean by it is the destructive behavior of those who 
seek to impose upon a society that destructiveness as routine, as the norm, so that the German doctors at the ramp in Auschwitz or Birkenau, when they sent Jews to the gas chambers, were not breaking the law, they were doing their job. That was what was expected of them within the malignant normality of Nazi Germany. Trump's malignant normality has parallels to this. I'm not saying he's a Nazi because he doesn't have the capacity for a sustained ideology that a Nazi must have. But in any case, he imposes on our society a malignant normality that includes lying, attacks on allies, embrace of dictators, and of a whole false concept of reality or solipsistic reality, various kinds of attacks and bitter and vicious attacks on those who question him so that he does not simply mean to counter such people, but rather to destroy them. This is the form of malignant normality that he imposes on our society. And whenever I say he, I mean the Trumpists who surround him and who represent destructive patterns in American society that have long preceded Trump. And when I speak of witnessing professionals, I mean those who can bring to bear their professional knowledge and experience to expose the malignance of that normality and to oppose it and to insist upon a more accurate kind of reality and insist upon life-enhancing rather than life-destroying behavior. And at our present time, there's very much that process going on. That's a hopeful tendency that we bring to the election and to combating Trumpism. There is an increasing recognition of the malignance of the normality Trump has sought to impose and a recognition of his transgressions as no longer believable or acceptable and as profoundly dangerous to any kind of democratic process. You are not alone in noting his propensity for lying and what you call his promulgating his solipsistic reality, namely that whatever he needs to say at any given moment, he will say regardless of the reality. And sometimes you get almost whiplash with how quickly he says the opposite or or uh, something that you know negates what he's recently said and this is very perplexing to many of us to just try to understand how he can do it why he does it and what it must be like to be him in the process of doing that i realize that's it's an exercise in futility but among your writings you have come up with this concept you call doubling And I wonder if that, first of all, what is it? And does that help to explain how he can do it? The concept of doubling, I came up with also in relation to Nazi doctors, but applied it elsewhere. And that meant the formation under certain conditions of what's functionally a second self, uh, so that a Nazi doctor could take a leading role in the killing process during the week and go home from Poland to Germany over a long weekend or over some kind of R&R and be an ordinary father and husband. I haven't applied the concept of doubling to Trump, and I think it's less applicable because I don't think he forms what we can call a self, a sufficient structure or pattern that it can be identified as a self. Rather, I would say, as he changes and wavers, as you described, rather I would say that it's possible 
for people in general to have contradictory views simultaneously, such as the complexity of the mind. And uh, I think often belief can be seen as a form of adaptation under duress so that one can have a belief one day and change it another day. But few people would do that to the extent that Trump does and has to do, given his solipsistic reality. I would add that his capacity to confuse has diminished and his capacity to impose his malignant normality has been threatened by the virus because the coronavirus is an organic, physical entity that causes grave illness and, in many cases, deaths. This cannot be eliminated from our psyches. It creates patterns of death anxiety everywhere in all of us. That being the case makes it very different as he attempts to apply his solipsistic reality, different from when he falsely recounts a conversation with a Ukrainian leader or uh, some other behavior. This is physical, organic evidence to the contrary, so that his reality system, always confusing and limited, is now breaking down. He can still confuse us, but he's less and less able to impose his solipsistic reality on the society. And in that sense, the election and the opposition to Trump in general is a struggle to regain a sense of reality and of truth throughout the society. One of the characters that you note in cults is an apocalyptic character. And it seems to me that whether it's COVID-19 or climate change or the nuclear threats, which have receded from the media, but are there nonetheless, and in some ways worse than ever because of the tossing aside of treaties and things like that. But anyway, these things, any one of which would be enough to create an apocalyptic feeling, leads to psychic numbing, reality fatigue, you name it. And you have written recently about how we have to overcome these things. And I would like to focus on climate change in that regard. And you have some concepts that I think are really helpful. One is distinguishing between fragmentary awareness and formed awareness. Would you please talk about that in terms of how we get to a consciousness in order to deal with these things? Well, first, to say a word about climate change and apocalypticism, when we observe the raging fires, particularly on the West Coast, these are not simply wildfires. They are climate events. They are aspects of climate change and global warming, which have caused severe heat, drought, and conditions for large-scale fires. We used to think of climate change as simply incremental, gradual, an increase here, a slight increase there, but it has gone beyond this incremental function. It is with us, and it can be, as in the case of these fires, apocalyptic in its quality. Apocalyptic is a term of Judeo-Christian concepts in which there is an end of the world in the service of purification and renewal. And in the Bible, there is reference to fire and water as agents of the apocalypse. Fire involves the flames of the second death and the apocalyptic narrative of the most uh, apocalyptic volumes of the Bible. And certainly water has to do with Noah's Ark. And the apocalyptic 
story promises a purification and in that sense can be an attraction to certain people so that they can see deaths and their death in particular as having profound significance. But to understand all this and to combat the dangers of global warming and climate change, we have to take in, as the society has been doing, truths about cause and effect and the role of fossil fuels in creating global warming. And I speak of fragmentary versus formed awareness in the sense that fragmentary awareness really is a kind of back and forth imagery of sometimes recognizing that this is climate change, sometimes not, sometimes seeing it as an aspect of fossil fuels, sometimes not, and sometimes looking to renewable fuel sources as an answer, and sometimes, unfortunately, failing to do that, as opposed to formed awareness, which is a more steady and structured recognition or awareness of climate change, its causes and effects, and where we are now and what we must do. Fortunately, there has been a movement from fragmentary to formed awareness, both in relation to nuclear threat and climate threat, or what I call the apocalyptic twins. But this recognition or this formed awareness does not in itself create the necessary steps to combat these dangers. Rather, it brings about the mindset that we require to do that. That's saying a great deal. And that's why in another recent book, which I call The Climate Swerve, I talk about the embrace of this formed awareness as a hopeful sign, but still far short of what needs to be done. And it seems to me that rather than a doomsday attitude, a lot of young people are embracing this and saying, we don't have a choice anymore. We have to act on requiring civilization to stop this rush towards cataclysmic climate change. And I think that that is a huge shift psychologically to business as usual. And I liked very much one of your terms from the book, The Climate Swerve, Reflections on Mind, Hope, and Survival. We hear about stranded assets, but you talk about stranded ethics. Would you expand on that, please? Well, when various corporations, and particularly those with strong vested interests in fossil fuels continue to commit themselves to removing from the ground those fossil fuels in order to bring them into play and in a way serve the financial requirements of their investors. That is what I call stranded ethics as opposed to stranded assets in which one would allow those sources of danger, those fossil fuels, to remain in the ground because to bring them up from the ground is to endanger the future of human civilization. It seems an easy and logical choice to make, but stranded ethics, in the sense that I'm describing it, are still all too present in the behavior of many large corporations and need to be combated in the struggle over climate change and the struggle for the kind of mindset that can bring formed awareness to it. What about the individual level that people 
uh, rationalize saying, oh, whatever I do is insignificant. I'm not going to make any difference. And therefore, they continue to contribute to climate change. I think that climate change is of such a dimension that it does require collective behavior, behavior of institutions and groups and movements. And in that sense, I think individuals, on the one hand, do well to reduce their own carbon footprint because that's an expression of awareness and in a small way, it it contributes to combating climate danger. But they do better to ally themselves. We do better to ally ourselves with larger groups with governmental policies, with movements that bring to bear collectively and more powerfully the necessary steps to combat global warming and climate change. I think that individual behavior has importance because it keeps us aware of what we're dealing with. And one has to remember that climate change is the all enveloping danger, just about everything else that endangers us has to do with climate change, even nuclear weapons, uh, so that climate change has to be central to our consciousness and has to be acted upon at every level. Finally, in general, in my work, I have an overall perspective Uh, that can be summed up in two words. Everything counts. Yes. You have written about the human susceptibility to conspiracy theories. And we are now seeing the, I think it's almost another epidemic in the United States, and particularly the QAnon conspiracy What can you share with our listeners about this? Well, I'm no particular authority about QAnon, but it is cultic to the bone in its creation of its own reality. And recent writers on conspiracism make an interesting point. They tell us that the problem is not so much a particular conspiracy theory, but rather a new conspiracism, which is a form of mindset that constantly brings conspiracy into every major issue. And that's what we see with Trump and Trumpists, a conspiratorial mindset of this kind. And of course, QAnon is very much in that mode. It seems to those who have worked much of their lives to reduce the threat of nuclear holocaust, to promote the life force in the environment, that the Trump administration has been a complete reversal, even to the point where some people consider it a death cult. And you wrote a book called Who Owns Death? Capital Punishment, the American Conscience, and the End of Executions. And here we are in the William Barr regime, where the federal government is now reintroduced executions. Share with our listeners some of the things that you found out about who owns death and your thoughts on this turn that we're taking. When Greg Mitchell and I wrote that book, we used the title, Who Owns Death, because it suggests that any society that kills, that is, that imposes the death penalty regularly, is claiming ownership of death. And that's a disturbing and malignant turn in a society with that kind of policy. Certainly what Barr and Trump in their alliance are doing is, how should I put it, they're 
reconstituting and re-energizing the death penalty and bringing it to the fore, uh, at least in federal situations, is part and parcel with the overall tendency to sacrifice elements or groups in the society in the name of their perspectives. When tens of thousands of Americans are killed in a form of presidential killing, we see the president whose responsibilities in office are supposed to be that of protecting and enhancing the life patterns of their people, making that 180 degrees turnabout and instead killing those among their people who are considered expendable. And those considered most expendable in relation to the coronavirus are old people or people with some kind of danger in their exposure, whether in prisons or in various forms of location and entities. And that is why some people call it a death cult. That may be too simple a phrase, but if one describes the behavior in some detail, which I'm doing to a degree, one can see why that term comes to mind. Well, out of one side of their mouth, they're, they're doing that. On the other side, they're promoting a, a rigid so-called pro-life agenda, which we are seeing most recently in the court appointments at all levels of the federal judiciary, but particularly the rushing through of the third appointment by Trump to the Supreme Court of the United States. And part of their their um, shibboleth is this supposed pro-life agenda, which I think, sir, you have pretty well exposed as not so pro-life, which brings up the idea of fundamentalism, which you go into, and you posit another view, which you call the protean self. Would you talk briefly about what you mean about fundamentalism? And then what do you mean by this protean self? Before I come to the protean self, let me just say, in terms of contradictions of claiming to be pro-life while bringing death more actively into the picture, I've discovered in my work that it is very difficult to kill large numbers of people except with a claim to virtue. That's a disconcerting idea, but certainly the communists and even the Nazis have seen themselves as renewing the world, as serving the world in their murderous behavior. With the protean self, it's in many ways an alternative to that kind of totalism or fundamentalism. And the protean self, named after the Greek sea god Proteus, who was a notorious shapeshifter, emphasizes the openness of the self rather than being a fixed entity, as we used to think. More and more psychologists are coming to view the self as changing, as multiple as transformative. Even William James, who preceded psychoanalysis and other more recent developments, emphasized the shifting nature of individual behavior of the individual self and even of collective behavior. So the protean self is not an automatic solution to anything, but it's a way of being that is an alternative to the closed and fixed self, the fundamentalist self, which is so dangerous and can be so readily absolutized. There has been some research over the past decade or so that seems to indicate that people with a tendency towards authoritarianism have almost a genetic component to that aspect. And then people who are less authoritarian also have that as a preformed before they're even born. Do you have any thoughts on that? 
I would emphasize less a genetic tendency than an overall social tendency. Yes, of course, it's quite possible that there is a genetic component in one's vulnerability to authoritarianism, but what really endangers us is the kind of social movement that embraces authoritarianism, that offers what we call dog whistles to it, encourages it to the point of absolutism and violence, because there will always be a certain core or a certain element in society who are particularly vulnerable to authoritarianism, whether there is a genetic source to it or not. And it's the social movement that can bring it into force and endanger the rest of society. And we're seeing some of that now. We're concerned always in a democracy with the tyranny of the majority, but there's also the danger of the tyranny of the authoritarian minority. Dr. Lifton, you have lived a very long life. You have spent it through really intense study of humanity. And I wonder, as you leave us today, and thank you so much for joining us, what would you like to say to our listeners about where we as a culture are now and how you would like to see us move forward? When I completed my study of Nazi doctors, which was the most difficult and most egregious kind of behavior, the most evil behavior I had encountered in my work. When I had completed that study, a lot of friends would ask me, okay, now you've studied Nazi doctors, what do you think of human beings? What do you think of humankind? And they expected me to say, not very much. But my answer was and is, we can go either way. We're not helpless. But in these struggles, whether it's witnessing professionals or decent citizens or some combination of both, we never reach a point of perfection. It's a constant struggle, and there are ever-present barriers and losses. At the same time, we are capable of bungling through, and even that requires full energies on the part of all of us. I think right now we're at a very dangerous stage. It's precarious because of the elements of malignant normality that we've been talking about and the danger that this constellation of Trump and Trumpism that they bring about to us. But having said that, I think we're capable of continuing with our democracy, however flawed. Our institutions, which are battered now, can, if not be fully rescued, can be made to function as they are to a sufficient degree to get us past this immediate danger. And once we get past this immediate danger to our democracy, our problems begin. And finally, is there something you would like to say that I didn't bring up or that interviewers never bring up that you wish would be brought up? I would only say, and this is implicit in what we've been talking about, I would only say that in this time of extreme threat, it is possible and necessary to live with hope. That doesn't mean one is completely optimistic about any kind of outcome or that there will be a Zen or Sartori moment, but it does mean that one rejects pessimism as all too easy and instead commit oneself to constructive behavior in living with hope and with active opposition 
to these forces of destruction that I've been so preoccupied with. Well, Dr. Robert J. Lifton, I cannot thank you enough for your work and for joining us today on Forthright Radio. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Our guest today on Forthright Radio has been Dr. Robert J. Lifton. His latest book is Losing Reality on Cults, Cultism, and the Mindset of Political and Religious Zealotry. The views and opinions expressed on Forthright Radio are those of the speaker and do not necessarily represent those of this station's staff, its members, board of directors, or contributors. Forthright Radio is a Beyond the Deep End production broadcast each first and third Wednesday of the month from the Philo Studios of KZYXNZ, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. I'm Joyla Clare. You can hear past Forthright Radio programs by going to our website, forthright.media. We'll be back on November 4th, the day after the presidential election, with news and analysis of what is sure to be an historical election. We hope you can join us. In the meantime, we'll go out with some inspirational songs. Woody Guthrie, All You Fascists Bound to Lose, Tom Paxton, What Did You Learn at School Today? Roy Zimmerman, The Liar Tweets Tonight, and Steve Earle, Ashes to Ashes. Till next time, this is Joy LaClaire signing out for now. Put it there, boy, and we'll show these fascists what a couple of hillbillies can do. Washington never told a lie I learned that soldiers seldom die I learned that everybody's free And that's what the teacher said to me And that's what I learned in school today That's what I learned in school And what did you learn in school today Dear little boy of mine What did you learn in school today Dear little boy of mine I learned that policemen are my friends I learned that justice never ends I learned that murderers die for the crimes Even if we make a mistake sometimes And that's what I learned in school today That's what I learned in school And what did you learn in school today Dear little boy of mine What did you learn in school today Dear little boy of mine I learned that war is not so bad I learned about the great ones we have had We fought in Germany and in France And someday I might get my chance And that's what I learned in school today That's what I learned in school And what did you learn in school today Dear little boy of mine What did you learn in school today Dear little boy of mine I learned our government must be strong It's always right and never wrong Our leaders are the finest men And we elect them again and again And that's what I learned in school today That's what I learned in school We, 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 we,